Welcome to episode eight of Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Holly Reed, and I will be hosting today's episode with occupational therapists Jennifer Bertoni and Justine Jecker. To close out the 2021 year, we will be talking about culturally appropriate interprofessional healthcare services for First Nations and Indigenous populations. Both of our speakers today have worked with First Nations populations in Northwestern Ontario with communities identifying as Ashinabek peoples. They both have a focus on culturally safe healthcare practices and how interprofessional teams appropriately service the needs of those in First Nations communities. Jen is a doctoral student through Queen's University studying rehabilitation, health, rehabilitation and health leadership. Although Jen's dissertation isn't quite confirmed yet, she is looking at exploring culturally safe healthcare practices and the development of interprofessional education honoring Indigenous narratives and community expertise in and around Thunder Bay, Ontario. Justine completed her PhD research two years ago in collaboration with six First Nations communities affiliated with Nokiwin Tribal Council between 2015 and 2019. She engaged in community-based action research using mixed method approaches involving interviews, surveys, and portraiture, which captured a snapshot of culturally driven interprofessional competency of First Nations healthcare workers. The project concluded with co-developing a community resource hub that connects community members across Northwestern Ontario to culturally appropriate services. So welcome to you both, Justine and Jen. It's great to have you on the podcast today. So to get us started, um, could you share a little bit of background in terms of what it means for you to provide culturally appropriate services uh, and how this links to the idea of interprofessional competency, which you are both experienced with? So Jenna, I'll invite you to go first if you're okay with that. Sure, yeah. Hi, um, thanks for having me on this. Um, I reached out to Justine a bit ago and I'm, I'm just very grateful to have the opportunity to share some of my perspectives. Um, so I live in Thunder Bay, born and raised, um, did undergrad education as well as um, a master's of public health here and then did my OT degree at Queens. And that's where um, Holly mentioned that I'm going to be continuing. I just feel like I keep going to school over and over again. Um, but when it comes to just culturally informed, culturally safe, culturally competent care, I feel like as OTs, we talk about client-centered care. And I feel like if we are truly being client-centered, we really need to incorporate that cultural piece, um, whatever that might be for the person, and that might differ. Um, and I feel like Sometimes um, there are some assumptions or biases um, with Indigenous people and, and um, care. Maybe those are implicit or explicit biases. I'm not sure. And, and I just feel like um, just really honing into that, that client-centered perspective and working with, with people, you know, whether it's natural helpers or leaders in the communities, really to get an overall picture um, and just really keeping in mind those strengths-based perspectives and practices that we use as OTs as well to really help those partnerships with our clients, if that makes sense. Yeah, Jen, I yeah, I really like the way you explained that. And it's something I was reflecting on my time when I moved to Thunder Bay in 2009, pretty much as soon as I graduated. And it wasn't until I took a job formally in Thunder Bay, my, my first position in forensic mental health, where that's where the eye opener happened. And it was almost like as soon as I graduated, my schooling was actually really just beginning. 
And so this idea of culturally appropriate service, I, I think I re remember the first time I heard that lingo because it really stuck with me. And it would have been about the second or third year of um, that position when um, we were brought outside on Indigenous Peoples Day on June 21st, and we were uh, we were dedicating time to honor uh, the different practices in the in the area. And I remember hearing that term, culturally appropriate care, and it's one of those things that I just began to wonder, what is that? Am I am I doing that? I thought mm -hmm. by being I thought by being patient centered, that would automatically include this this idea that it'd be culturally appropriate because mm -hmm. if I'm focusing on the patient, then am I not also being culturally appropriate? And so that was like the very beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, that's yeah. a great point for sure. Because, and I feel too, like just being Indigenous myself and growing up, you know, my, my grandma actually kind of hid our ancestry from us just as a result of, you know, just colonization and and wanting to and I remember her saying explicitly like we're the same as everyone else and so just having that understanding for, and not really knowing that growing up and then as I sort of was as a family we were sort of unpacking some of that history together and just as I was an OT and thinking like well I'm doing client-centered care is that not the same but when we look at how western um, the approaches are in terms of our formal training it's and it's interesting too when you're I say up here but when you when you when you're up here you're not you don't have the same access to different resources or some of the standardized assessments like they're not applicable right so you are doing a lot of functional assessments um, using what you have available right um, and so I feel like that really helped kind of build that um, knowledge base for me, just from like a personal perspective, but also from like the OT world where you're using, you know, those standardized assessment tools or whatever. And you're like, this, this is really not helping me, number one, develop a therapeutic relationship with my clients because like they don't get it. And now there's almost like these questions of like questioning you know, the relevance and why do we have to do this and what's sort of, and you, and you can see how that links back to, um, you know, a lot of the oppressive stuff that's, you know, part of our history. So I feel like the combination of that was really eye-opening for me, but yeah, how client-centered care sometimes doesn't equal culturally safe or culturally appropriate care, right? So no, that's yeah. the point. It even the term culturally appropriate, you know, it's it's interesting. I remember, again, at the time, the first decade of the 2000s, the idea of a cultural model, it was, and I would still argue still is, is the Kaba River model. Like that was the model you turn to as an OT and it's like, okay, we're considering other cultures. Let's use this model. And I use that for 10 years. My entire time mm -hmm. in working with First Nation communities, that was the only model that I could really go to where I felt some level of comfort and connection um, that I could use as a talking point, as a starting point, as an assessment tool, as a reassessment tool. Um, but it, it's interesting how that term alone culture, uh, depending on the circles you're in, it, it either explicitly means one thing, like Indigenous right. care, or you know it's this really large concept of, of appreciating and understanding people from all different cultural backgrounds and i think that we're living in a time where that uncertainty of what the term means is is challenging for therapists because 
there is a level of competency that's required, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't sure. just graduate and know how to do this. No, no. And I too, and I find too, like I use different things like the, um, in terms of the bringing in professional education. So the competency framework for interprofessional education, I, I used a template. I think it's from McGill was one of the ones that I've used and just trying to get like a sense of, you know, what are some key pieces that I want to see if I can, um, kind of touch on keeping in mind, like using them almost as a guide and it's not the be all end all. And I find the same with some of the OT tools that we have. Like I, um, I use a lot of them as guides, but sometimes in terms of like relevance or I, I don't know, use the MOCA for example, right? So like you want to see a baseline of a cognitive assessment, but sometimes like, is that really, is that score really going to give you the best picture of um, that person's abilities. Right. So, um, I try and use bits and I guess what that would be called evidence informed, right. Mm -hmm. Trying to find best practices and seeing how well they could help you, um, as a clinician, but it might not be sort of that whole like blanket off the shelf approach. Absolutely. And, and I want to pick up on what you're saying about the interprofessional focus, even that term, interprofessional teams working in First Nation or Indigenous communities, um, I started to realize, especially as I left my position at the hospital and worked in community care directly in Thunder Bay, and then starting to work outside of Thunder Bay, ranging from about 30 minutes up to four hours of driving time, just to give people a perspective in terms of how far the, these communities were away. But when you're talking about the interprofessional team, there you're talking about you know, uh, health coordinators and totally. educators from the school, yep. counsel band counselors, yep. um, band administrators, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, people who identify as spirit builders or knowledge keepers. Those, those are the people that, you know, make up the interprofessional team. And it's, it's such a, it's, it, it was really a shift for me coming from the hospital where when you use that term, you automatically think, okay, social worker, doctor, really? yeah, the healthcare titles, right? Yeah, all the regulated, yes, folks, right, yeah, regulated sure. and yeah. affluent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, university degree, like you start to totally. see kind of this, you see the dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so true for sure. And even like I remember one, um, I would, I did some work just doing some assessments on um, kids with special needs and trying to set up sort of a, when the special needs strategy was sort of going on, um, helping some of the First Nations communities with that. And you said you even driving. So those communities are even accessed by road, right? Where some of them, that's like, you have to fly in, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's an ice road and you can only drive in in the winter time. And um, so a lot of the times, like all of these different factors need to be considered where you wouldn't think about that before but I remember one of my allies was actually the lady that ran a daycare like she it was just a home daycare and she was fantastic like there was those few contacts you know that you never forget that were like instrumental in helping you um, move your work along in the community right and so and yeah definitely not uh, not a regulated health professional but unbelievable in terms of helping I have a reflection that's actually going to lead me into another question because I think I can connect a lot with what you're both saying and um, Jen thank you for sharing your story about your grandma kind of keeping your family identity a, um, a secret or not disclosing it that's actually very relevant to what happened in my family my grandfather 
didn't know until he was, I think, 70 about our indigeneity. And um, it's it really changes how you think about things and how you connect with that. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing that. Um, and then also what you were saying about client-centered practice, and it made me wonder, in schooling, I think we're taught client-centered practice and cultural competency is a skill that can be learned. And when you were both talking about that, it made me wonder, like, how can we get away from, it's not a skill that can be learned, like it's not a hard skill that you can practice on your own and then apply it to any population that's really actually potentially going to do more harm. So would either of you have any insight or advice into how everyday OTs can really integrate cultural safe maybe components and Jen you talked about pieces rather than like one solid thing um, one solid approach across every population so do either of you have any insight into that yeah and I think first um, it's not a checkbox right and it, it I even the word and I talked about this actually in one of my courses um, through the program at Queen's the just the term cultural competency kind of seems like you once you've you're mastering something right like now I'm competent um, when in fact like it's almost just the dedication to lifelong learning like you're just you're going to um, you know whether that's you make a point to put it on your prep plan for <laughs> or your your professional development plan for um, the college but it's just that dedication to you know, I'm really, I'm going to spend some time to try and continue to improve myself as a clinician, whether it's through reflective practice, um, you know, education, just kind of just talking less and listening more, right? Um, I think that's so important. And even just when you look at um, cultural safety or um, cultural safe practices, like there's different frameworks that you can look up as well and how you can even use those to help you along your journey, right? Whether it's to set it up well, um, you know, even just the idea of like um, just self-location, like how I, you know, disclose some of my history and, and who I am and uh, I come to meetings or um, events and this is sort of what I bring to the table, right? Um, and I think that that's a really powerful way to kind of start your introduction or, you know, ask um, clients what their pronouns are. How do they, what, what would they, what names do they, would they prefer to be called? Um, and just showing that, you know, right, right at the beginning, just that respect and opportunity to, to build those safe relationships, right. In a, in a way that, you know, you're, there's no judgment and, and um, I feel like that's how you really start a truly collaborative process with someone. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that, Jen. I, I really, you know, and, and because it is so opportune right now with uh, the release of the new Canadian competencies, um, and specifically Section C, focusing on culture, equity, and justice. And I like your suggestion in terms of a tangible thing to do incorporating it. I know that in Ontario, we call it the prep module, but across mm -hmm. Canada, there's different names for it, but it's essentially your professional development plan, your goals that you're working towards as a therapist. Um, I'm going to share something that I did during my PhD process because I had a very similar question, Holly, for myself. How was I going to achieve or at least get on the path of understanding how I would learn about and then implement cultural care. And so there was, there was kind of this three-step process. Um, the first one was really about myself 
and it was understanding what do I know, what don't mm-hmm. I know, and um, and then being able to articulate that. So I'd actually use portraiture as one of my methodologies. It was my mixed methodology to bring together uh, the quantitative and qualitative pieces, and it that was really a true reflection through the portrait of me and what do I know and what don't I know so that I, I could be transparent with myself before beginning to work. Um, the second piece was really about creating a blueprint. And I think that, um, and Jen and I have talked about this before, but it, it's one of the pieces that I, I was able to publish in OT now in, in July of 2019. And that blueprint was really just this pathway of how do I work through what is this massive thing called truth and reconciliation in a way that makes sense for me and create little um, milestones or or checkpoints where I can say, okay, this is what I'm working towards. And I think that's really similar to what you're suggesting, Jen, in the sense of put it in your PD plan and maybe have have an annual vision, but maybe have a five-year vision so you know Mm -hmm. You know, let's say you want to change the policies at your local clinic because they are oppressive in language and and harmful to clients. Well, trying to think of doing that in a year might seem really overwhelming, but maybe in the first year you can begin by changing the language use, which is also something you've talked about. And then and kind of create those checkpoints for yourself over a period of time. Um, and then and then the third thing is really about having an outcome. So you know, the the calls to action, that language is so intentional because, you know, if we go back in time, if we go to the 90s, if we go to the United Nations document, these documents have been created and then often left to their own devices or nothing's been done. Mm -hmm. So for me, that third point is really that action oriented outcome. What is going to become of this? Um, in the case of my research, I was very fortunate um, in collaboration with the communities and Okewan Tribal Council, we were able to come up with a community resource hub focused on cultural services, the ones that I self-identified as being culturally appropriate mm-hmm. directly directly within the communities. And so, and, and now that's a system that's being used every day by, by First Nation communities. So that's, you know, th- those three things, it, it starts kind of within you and then, you know, and then within the people in the community that you want to be working with. But it's kind of taking one baby step at a time to get yeah. to the bigger picture. Yeah. And there's something actually that one of the things that you said about what do I what do I know and what do I don't know? And also, what do I what do I need to learn and what do I need to unlearn yeah. from what from my past experiences, my knowledge, whatever, right? In terms of providing more safe, culturally safe care. And there was one document that I, I just read recently and I, I I don't have it, like the reference of it, but I think it was from BC because I feel like BC, I get a lot of um, culturally cultural humility, cultural safe uh, documents out of there. But one had, um, there was like a five-step process and I just have a couple notes. One was protocols, personal knowledge, partnerships, um, process, but the, the last one was positive purpose. And in terms of the outcome and um, being strength-based, but also being accountable. And I remember when I was working um, in one of the communities, uh, the chief, he, he came to me and he said, okay, so doing all of these assessments is good, but what are you going to do about it? You know, what are, what's, are you just going to tell us that, you know, there's this many issues and then 
you're gone. So like, if you're going to, if you're going to say something or you're going to promise something, you need to be doing something about it. Right. And I found that to be super powerful and something that I haven't forgotten in terms of if I'm just going to, if I'm going to be there to just talk, I'm not sure how helpful that is. Like uh, there needs to be some sort of follow-up in terms of, you know, providing some help or some service afterwards. So. Yeah. Thank you both. And um, just on that last point, I was reading a book called research is ceremony um, by Sean Wilson and he talks about accountability and Jen, that just made me think of that. Like you, you gather this information, the researcher is the data collection tool, basically like that's why it's so important to position oneself and reflect on the space we hold and who we are, where we come from. All of that I think is really important, but then really the accountability piece and say, if I'm going to be gathering this information, making analyses about it and, and making statements with that information, what's the follow-up and, and what does the community want this information to basically lead to and all of that. So I think that's a really important piece as well. Totally. Right. And even just as assessments, if you went up there to do assessments and they showed whatever, so then now what? Now we just have these assessment results. So it'd be the same thing as research, right? Like it would be like, what what is the next step to to help the community in whatever way they're they're wanting or needing right yeah it's it's fully a commitment like i think that's what's challenging our profession working um and i'll speak specifically you know with first nation indigenous communities this concept that it is a commitment and it is it is at the level of a human being to another human being Absolutely. and you you can't just walk away from that commitment because your hours are up um or you did your assessment like there. Mm -hmm you know there is it, it's very circular that there's a beginning and it comes around and it has to go full circle to feel like that connection has been formally made and i think our profession really struggles with that because we are broken into so many different pieces like we have acute care and then community care and then mental health right. care so even within our intra-professionally within our own profession you can be sent to a bunch of different ot's because um, that idea of generalism is fading. It's mm -hmm. one of the few places in Canada that generalism thrives is actually in northern communities. Um, we know this, uh, and it's it's so ironic because we're still graduating with the title as a generalist, but in our almost 60 areas of practice, generalism is just one, and it's not representing all 60. And so, you know, imagine, yeah, we have to reimagine, and like you're saying, Jen, and unlearn how we've been taught and think about, if we're going to provide cultural care, how can we be committed from the beginning to the end? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it is different because it's not just I'm going to send this referral and then home care is going to pick them up. And then, you know, because in some of the communities, you're it like there's there is no like the referral would go to nobody because there is actually there's no physical person to do that job. So um, it's just yeah, those definitely being part through that whole process is key, right? And and I feel like that's really where you build some incredible relationships with people and and just that trust is, yeah. It results in a reward more rewarding um, part of my career than a, in any other sort of aspect for sure. It's making me think about how we talk about accountability and it's actually very relevant to social accountability. And we had a question um, after our last episode um, from an OT named Stephanie Solomon Annie, 
And I just want to take a second to to kind of connect that to what we're talking about today. Um, so linking together the concept of this this social accountability piece and then also this culturally appropriate care that we've been chatting about. Um, so Stephanie asks us, how as OTs do we foster hope, the courage to speak up and the courage to be imperfect in our efforts to be better? So I'm not sure Justine or, or Jen who wants to go first and I can repeat the question if you want. Yeah, well, the first time I, uh, um, when I first read that question, actually, I looked at the statement just that came to my mind first is just meeting people where they're at. And that could be the clinician not feeling comfortable or confident in some of their abilities, what, you know, if, if they're working um, with uh, Indigenous clients, or even, you know, when sometimes things don't go, you know, as you plan when you walk in there with your clipboard and you have this, you know, you've been uh, referred to an OT for A and B. And so you have your idea of how you want it to go and just meeting, meeting each other where you're at, right. And being open um, and honest and respectful. And I feel like um, this is where even um, I work in mental health. So I'm sort of, I'm kind of veering over into the mental health world. Um, and a lot of our clients too, right? When you first meet someone there, there, it takes a while for them to kind of want to open up to you just based on previous trauma, you know, um, just their experiences in their lives. Right. So, and sometimes you're not, and as OTs, even thinking like from my formal schooling, like I, I didn't know, I, there was no one that said, if you come across, you know, someone with schizophrenia and a complex trauma history, this is what you do. So um, it's just being, being open, um, you know, really focusing on client strengths and um, looking at um, learning from each other, right? So what I, I'm here as the OT, um, I bring a certain skill set, um, resources, et cetera, but the client too, um, what can, what can we learn from our clients, right? That can really help um, move us forward or, or just on their journey. How can we help them on their journey? Yeah, Jen, I really like that, um, that idea of connectedness and, and being part of the journey. I think, I, I, I think back to what it meant to foster hope as an OT, especially as a non-Indigenous OT, um, coming from a background where the first 25 years of my life I didn't even know colonialism was still happening you know so so it is a loaded question how how do we offer hope and I think that for me being in the communities and finding ways to connect people with other people that they felt affiliated with like mm -hmm. when I talked earlier about the interprofessional team understanding that the person in the community who's doing beaded um, garments is actually part of the healing process. And that person would be a really great person for somebody experiencing different mental health issues to connect with. Mm -hmm. I think that's when I began to learn how to foster hope in individuals rather than providing a 1-800 number, although that's important, but rather than just saying, you should go to all of these Western ways right. of healing, um, I feel like, I started to realize how quickly that would shut people down and shut down that concept of hope. Mm -hmm. And in allowing the second part of the question, Ollie, was around the courage to speak up. I think that 
as an OT, if you're truly, uh, this is where the humility piece comes in. If you're truly willing to listen, mm -hmm. you will ask the question, what am I doing wrong or what could I be doing better? And it's interesting because in OT school, we learn about that. We learn about that skill to give and receive feedback quite often between professionals, but being able to really do that with a client and take those moments to say, could I have done something better? Um, should I have included somebody else in this conversation because it's right. just you and it would have been better if maybe other family members were here? I, I think that those uh, let yourself be guided, I guess, is what I'm thinking in terms of fostering hope and and the courage to speak up. I, I feel that not only will we become better OTs, but then we will truly learn about cultural humility and engaging in that process um, in a different way. Yeah. And even just to add on that is just keep showing up, right? Sometimes, you know, the first five times you might circle back around and, and just sort of say, Hey, I'm here. And the first five times they, you know, people aren't ready to, to work with you, but maybe on time six or maybe on times 36. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just the fact that you're, you're still, you're, you're committed to showing up however that could look or, you know, that's going to work best for that client. So. I love that. Yeah. And I feel like that's been a bit of a theme today, this idea of commitment mm -hmm. and present presence. Um, and it's not always about achieving something, this idea of being rather than always doing, which is as an o OTs, we do sometimes get lost in that trap, right? Mm -hmm. We're so focused on occupation that um, the rapport building process, I think that's also something that can be talked about here because that is a huge part of uh, being able to even get to that point where you can engage in, a, in effective therapy is you have to have that solid foundation. And I know with our TRC task force at CAOT as an example, you know, they were very clear at the outset that for the ne for the first two to three years, we're building a foundation. We are building relationships and getting to know one another. And I wonder, um, you know, if we look at that CPPF model or really any of the models of OT, they're kind of equally weighted, right? You know, you enter the stage, you then go to assessment, intervention, this sort of thing. But I wonder if the bubble around rapport building and relationship building, if that were the biggest bubble that there were, and everything else just kind of trickled from that, how different our therapeutic focus would be. Um, right. and, and on that note, and I'm not, I'm not at all versed in this, I'm just sharing it because some people might not be aware, but there is an integrated CMOP model, which I only became aware of in the last two months. Mm -hmm. And that does have a focus on working with persons with Indigenous background. But I think that it's a step in the right direction of, of our model starting to change to, to really examine and, and work with individuals with, with different viewpoints, and especially those with Indigenous background. Absolutely. And I feel like with the bubbles, I'm just, um, there's a few um, projects that I'm working on specific to um, substance use um, and trauma uh, within Thunder Bay. And um, we, we talk about, you know, assessment and intervention, but we could be offering the best interventions on the planet. But if our clients don't trust us, they're never going to take them. So there needs to be this, this, I feel like it needs to be the number one place to start, right? Because every, if you're not, if you don't get that part, 
it's really hard to kind of move into the assessment and, and intervention because what, what information are you really getting from those if the person doesn't trust you enough to really talk to you? So yeah, that's definitely coming, lo coming out loud and clear in the work that we're doing right now. Wow, thank you both for those for those answers. That was very insightful and I think helpful because you talked about from the client's perspective how to foster this hope and, and engagement where they can speak up, like enabling, not even enabling because that sounds like a power dynamic, but creating a space where the client can speak up and that takes courage, but then also occupational therapists can speak up and say, like you said, Jen, is there something I could have done better or different? And having that open dialogue, I think, is so important. I think that's been consistent throughout this episode. If I'm to kind of summarize and, and bring us to the end here, I think this commitment, it's not just coming in and mastering something, providing a solution and leaving. That's the that's the exact like colonial perspective that's been happening all along. So really taking a step back, trying to deco decolonize our, our even our approach to how might I be able to better work with this person mm -hmm. and better meet their needs. And often people know what they need. It's just a matter of coming to that solution together um, in a shared way. So I really appreciated the conversation today. And I think um, it's it's not a conversation that's going away anytime soon. And I don't think it should. I think we're just we're just scratching the surface of the changes that can be made and, and how occupational therapists are going to play a really important role because we're often the ones I'm not going to brag, but we're often the ones that have like the most, I think, um, intimate or like the closest relationships with our clients. And they we do develop the sense of trust. So I think using that as a as a therapeutic tool and and using the approaches that you guys have talked about, I think is going to be really beneficial. And um, if you have any final comments or thoughts, please feel free to share them before we sign off, unfortunately. No, I think this was great. Thank you both. I love talking with you. I hope we can do it again soon. <laughs> Absolutely, Jen. I just want to share for our listeners that we do have an occupational therapy Indigenous health network. Um, and we're very proud of that network. And we encourage anybody who wants to learn more or reach out to OTs with Indigenous background or even without Indigenous background working with Indigenous populations. It's a great opportunity. Um, and we also relaunched our TRC uh, webpage, which we're always wanting feedback on. So um, if you have any questions, comments, or you want to be part of the podcast, reach out at practice at caot.ca.